I don't have an endless pot of gold in my bank account. And the fact that we got through COVID and balanced the books and come out and still managed to open a bakery, I thought was a, a bit of a miracle in itself that I couldn't fight that profit margin that was just getting squashed constantly and not having the staff to do it because all I ended up doing was covering all the shifts. So I'd be doing bar and bakery and cafe, which I can't, as much as I can try, I work 24 hours and I don't need very much sleep. After doing 80-hour weeks for a while, I completely burnt myself out. Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. In today's episode, we are privileged to explore the fascinating entrepreneurial journey of Naomi Rose. Naomi's story is one of belief, tenacity, and risk-taking. Having started in digital leadership roles for some national charities, including RSPB, taking that eight years of experience, she took the courageous decision to actually leave this employment and follow her dreams and open a cafe bar. This was a significant roller coaster journey as she led and battled the business through the pandemic with such significant uncertainties and unprecedented challenges for the hospitality businesses during that time, to then securing £17,000 worth in crowdfunding to expand her business and then winning Britain's Best Loaf Awards. You'll hear how Naomi's marketing skills, intuitive leadership and her community-led approach helped her make a success of the business despite some epic challenges and no prior hospitality experience. We'll delve also into her strategic decisions that she made, how she navigated the pandemic and the post-COVID world which had such catastrophic impacts on her. Having started my own hospitality business many years ago, and also having worked in the industry for a few years. This episode actually brought a few memories, good and bad for me, about the demands of the sector. It really is a brutal industry, and this conversation highlights it well. So prepare yourself for a captivating and authentic exploration of Naomi's entrepreneurial journey. This is Beyond the Fail with Naomi Rose. Naomi, welcome to Beyond the Fail. Um, really looking forward to this conversation. It's been a kind of long time coming. Uh, excuse my croaky voice. I've had a kind of sore throat and a cold for a few days, so I uh, hope it's going to be okay. So, Naomi, take us back. Where did it kind of all start for you? So, I guess it started actually probably back in 2017 because I was doing a job and it was a, it was a nice job. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Nine, well, nine to five. It wasn't nine to five. It's beyond nine to five. Nice people, nice company. That Where are you was working? Doing. I was working in a, a national charity here in the UK, okay. so I was heading up a digital team. So anything digital, marketing, all of that kind of thing, I used to do. And I love doing events and that sort of stuff. My background, I'm a musician, so I'm a creative by nature. But I love a spreadsheet as well. So kind of doing a digital role helps quite well with that. But it just wasn't what I really wanted to do. So I thought, I'm going to sign up to the London Marathon because I can run five miles. So surely I can run a marathon because I needed to know I could challenge myself. 
So that's what I teach. <laughs> and I, I kind of went, okay, right, five miles, 26. This was it's like day and night, isn't it? <laughs> it was so hard, unbelievably difficult. Had I did you ever done anything like that before? No, no, never. I never. I mean, I'd, I'd run like the the race for like mm. the five k, and I'd started the run club at work, which was five k, but it was more chat than run. Uh, so I just I got to that point where I felt like I wasn't getting anything I was I was doing a job I could do mm. it wasn't stretching me mm. I wasn't being challenged physically or mentally and I needed to know that I could do something so I thought well like one of the charities I supported at the time's final research they had charity spaces available and I thought I'll give it a go what you know worst comes to worst I'll walk <laughs> that, yeah. it's 26 miles right yeah and, oh, I, I completely underestimated how hard it would be. It was beyond harder than I ever imagined because it, the training, the prep, the fundraising, everything took over my life. But when I got to the end of that marathon, it was like, I can't believe I've just done that. I just, for so many years, I'd limited myself clicking. That wasn't even possible for someone like me because I, you know, I used to work out stuff, but never to that level. But yeah, I just achieved this marathon, which not everyone does every day and that's where it kind of began I've come kind of like so why why am I limiting myself doing a job that is okay why I can I've just shown I can push myself beyond what I even thought was capable so maybe I just need to really think about what I want to do next what what were you looking for when you signed up to that marathon because you know when you said you were kind of in a job that you weren't I suppose, so sure about that wasn't stretching you. I think the normal, not normal, but some people might respond to that by, you know, potentially looking for another kind of project or a new job. But you you went a slightly alternative way and, and decided to run a marathon. What were you looking to, to kind of prove there or, or I suppose, evidence from, from that? To do more than I thought I could. It was had that opportunity to push myself beyond what I put my own limits in my head I had a limit of what I thought I could do and I used to watch the marathon every year and be completely in awe of these incredible people and just never thought that it was something possible for someone like me until the day I I committed myself <laughs> and then I was like oh god do it now I can't lose space <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I did it it wasn't like career-wise, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go, but I knew I kind of, I wasn't very good at working for other people. I mean, I was I was good at doing my job and I always wanted to do better and get promotions and go to the next level, but it wasn't what was making me really happy. And I just, I didn't like being kind of pigeonholed into certain sections of being able to do something. I wanted the freedom to make my own decisions and do what I wanted. So running that marathon was almost like my way of kind of going, I can do more than what someone is telling me I can or can't do. And most of that is myself telling me I can't do. Yeah, I was going to say, was there anyone that was actually telling you you couldn't do stuff or was that, have you got kind of limiting beliefs? Probably, well, limiting beliefs for sure. But I think in some ways in certain jobs, you're kind of like, well, even when you think, I really think you should be doing it this way, people tell you you can't do that way. So you, you can argue that and then you end up doing stuff you don't necessarily agree with. And that never, it was never really anything bad particularly or, you know, people have different opinions, but 
I'm I'm like to be in control and make my own decisions. So often I find that in my roles, there'll be things that the higher ups would want me to do that I just didn't feel comfortable doing. And that's where I kind of would end up sometimes. I just don't want to do this anymore. Mm. Doing a job that just doesn't make me do the stuff I love. Doing stuff that other people want me to do. I want to do something that I want to do. And because obviously that sounds kind of some of this sounds quite entrepreneurial right so you you know that and i can definitely um share some of those frustrations i suppose of of being employed essentially not having autonomy not having you know control over your decisions being kind of boxed into you know one sort of task area your know, one project area you know whether that's you know digital or hr or whatever it might be it, had you thought yourself as a as an entrepreneur um in in that way or was some of this just a sort of general sense of frustration of of where you're at in your career i think i had thought of myself as a bit of an like i wanted to work for myself i didn't want to necessarily work for anyone else and i was getting to that point where i was feeling like i could actually have the ability to do it i didn't really know what i wanted to do but when it got to sort of I'd run the marathon in 2017 and I actually, in 2017, handed in my notice and I went, don't know what I'm doing yet, but I know I'm, I've had, that's my time here. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've been that person that does quit jobs before finding new ones because I kind of think, well, I'll find it something else. <laughs> I'll find something else. It'll be fine. Everything will always be fine. That's quite a brave but, thing to do. Not everyone would, would, would do that, essentially take that, which is, People would view that as a bit of a risk. Are you kind of quite optimistic? Because that's there's no. an optimistic mindset of going, it will work out. Yes, I suppose to some extent I do. But then I also think that as humans, we're born survivors. So we'll always find a way through. So that's the kind of, well, I'll find a solution here. The, pro- the problem was the job I was in and that was causing me a problem. Mm. So the solution was to leave and find something else. So that's how I would view things. So it's looking at it from the opposite way. Where do you think you've got that? Where do you think you've got that that kind of that mindset from? Which I would say is not a, a you know, it's it's the opposite to risk averse. It's it's very much willing to um, have faith in yourself, I suppose, to find a way and find a solution. I think I've always been I've always been an independent person. I either I've got brothers and sisters, but they're older. 20 years older than me so I didn't grow up really around people I was on I was on my own a lot of the time I was quite independent and from a child and I was actually a trained musician so I started training as a musician I can't really remember when I started playing music there's always a piano in the house but I actually knew I was going to be a musician from a very early age I think it was about seven I wanted to be a professional flautist and in the world of theatre and music and everything like that, when you're growing up in performance, the show goes on regardless of whatever happens in it. Mm. <laughs> and it's that attitude of just, you know, just put your game face on and carry on. You'll find an option. There'll be a solution. And if you really want to do something, you'll find a way to do it, I think. And that that was what kind of in the theatre. I mean, I used to work backstage in the theatre as well. So some of the things that would go wrong in the middle of a performance would be quite amazing. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you just have to get through I'm it. Sure. What What age did you start performing then? You said you performed from an early age. Oh, uh, six, seven, something like that. 
so quite early on. Which I, that must yeah, give you it. a certain level of confidence to be on on stage or performing in front of others. It it did, but I was quite heavily bullied at school. So even though I went on, I knew music was something I always wanted to do, and I went on to music college and all that sort of thing. But I had no confidence. By about the age of ten, I had none. Getting on stage, I was terrified and nervous every single time. I spent hours with people helping me with anxiety and teaching me how to perform all the way through university and college because because of being bullied that heavily. So even though it was inside of me, all of that time, all of those years where I was just heavily bullied, it just stopped me from doing what I could do. And that was doing music, really. Do you reckon that's related to the limiting beliefs you were talking about earlier? Quite possibly, actually. I mean, it, it's amazing how people's voices and opinions can affect you in so many ways. And actually, probably until I started running my own business, and certainly not for the first year or year and a half, did I actually really start to ignore what other people were thinking? Mm. So you could you could ask my dad now. I like I could have arguments still blue in the face with him because I'm so stubborn. But <laughs> it certainly did limit what I thought I was able to do for a such long time. Do, have you ever? drawn that line to you know some of those comments early on and you know what that kind of did to you and then those beliefs that you so. had it by yourself in you know in in, in your um, later years some of them yes I mean one of the ones that I had which probably has my attitude of kind of keep calm and carry on was I had a flute teacher who told me when I was about eight years old and I wanted to be a professional flautist that was my dream at that point and she told me, because my teeth stuck out, I had quite sticky out teeth at the time. She told me, because my teeth stuck out, I can never be a professional. I was eight. Yeah. And that was what I stuck with. And so, obviously, my parents fired her, because you don't tell a child that. It doesn't matter whether they're going to be professional or not. You just, this is the wrong thing to say. And my mum went, well, why don't you learn to play a string instrument? Because you always need more string instruments in orchestras. And that's how I started the cello, and I played it ever since. So, in some ways, it was finding a solution to a problem, even though it wasn't really a problem because I still got to grade eight on the flutes. <laughs> but <laughs> it was some of those thoughts were kind of like, well, I just find an alternative. But that shouldn't have been an alternative I had to make. So that's definitely kind of influenced a lot of my thinking over the years. I think, and that's a great. <clears throat> attitude from your 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 parents as well obviously very kind of supportive um were they um like entrepreneurs at all or did have they been um strong role models to you yeah i mean they're both had in some way so my dad's been my business partner right. so he you know when i first kind of floated the idea of opening a cafe in a sort of passing comment mm -hmm. he had been retired i think about five ten years something like that and it's like, well, if you're going to do it, I want to do it. <laughs> I was like, really? It's like, well, yeah. I mean, uh, he got to that point in his retirement where he needed something more to do with his mind sports. other than play golf. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he was. So that's what we decided to do. And my mum my had her own business. She used to make curtains. So she, very similar to what 
I've ended up doing, which is kind of having that creative role and business role, she had the same thing. So she she used to make soft furnishings and curtains as I was growing up to help me. So she was around when I was growing up while my dad was at work. What did your dad do? Uh, he worked in animal health, so he was a, a sales rep, but basically he grew up being around farm and animals and stuff like that, so farming has been sort of part of the family for a long time. I'm actually a vegetarian now, which was much their horror when I turned vegetarian about 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but but his his role was all in animal health and farming and that sort of thing. That's where he grew up. He grew up on farms and, uh, yeah, he went into doing that and agriculture, which is actually where he met my mum. So... You quit your job. How 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 were you yeah. feeling at that point? Um, once you kind of quit. Well, I I'd quit and I'd gone to my and I'd always talked quite openly to my bosses that you know I, I wasn't going to stay there forever, and they said to me, so I handed in my notes and said, look, I'm just, I'm getting frustrated with the role. I can't see where I'm going to go with it, and also that's not good for either me or the business. So. Whenever I've quit a job and I've not enjoyed, it's because I've not enjoyed doing my job. I always think, well, it's not good for me. It's not good for the business. Mm. So there's no point in me staying here because I'm not going to be that person that everyone dreads going into a meeting with. Mm. <laughs> so that's why I'd handed in my notice. And they went, would you would you mind just staying an extra year and just covering the digital team? Because there was an extra, there was a post that said, all right, okay, I'll do that role. No more than a year, but on the basis that the job I've got now is backfilled permanently. So I don't want any people having any unknowing as to where their jobs are going to go because anyone that's covered a maternity role or been in a maternity post or anything like that, there's always this unknown as to whether they're going to keep the job they're in or whether they're going to have to slide back mm. a year in their career. I, I don't want that. I want people to know what they're doing. And of course, they were like, well, yes. I said, because I'm definitely going to leave. So I then definitely committed to leaving and they're like well what are you going to do and I don't know yet <laughs> I don't know something so I've got you to figure it out though you can be oh yeah actually you, <laughs> in some ways in some ways in that kind of worked out would you say that worked out better for you probably did actually because it gave me a year to really think about what I was doing and it was it was a good challenge to a slightly different job from what I had been doing but I mean it, there was a life there was a definitely a time limit on how long I was going to do that job mm. for. It was just, it, it was definitely going to go back to the person who was doing it. So that was fine with me. But yeah, my, my team were like, so your your job here is being advertised as a permanent role? I'm like, yeah, I'm not coming back. So what are you going to do? Don't know. Well, I couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. <laughs> like, well, you know me. <laughs> I couldn't do what you're doing now <laughs> in the sense of, some people have been there years. Are like that's not me. Then did that kind of naysaying ever get to you? No, I don't think any of that did. Some of the when I when I eventually worked out what I was going to do, and I was thought, well, my skills are digital marketing, social. I'll probably just become a consultant because that's an easy in going into that sort of thing. When the idea of the cafe first came around. I kind of started talking to a few people about it. And that's when I got a lot of comments about, oh, no, I wouldn't do that if I was you. That's the last thing I'd do. I wouldn't risk opening a cafe bar. That's just crazy. They were the things I got. And they're from some of the some of my family, yeah. some of my closest friends. And Why were they saying that? Some of those thought it was their own limiting beliefs or what they would do. 
it's not for them. And I can understand it's not for everybody. But sometimes they're doubts in my head like they would say oh I just wouldn't want the risk the financial worry or anything like that but then I don't want to stay in the comfort zone or being limited by someone else's what someone else thought I was worth so in some ways that wasn't necessarily the business idea that could be any business idea you could have come with them to really by the sounds of things they were they didn't want to they were kind of saying they you know they didn't want the the risk of opening a business right and 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 you're right entrepreneurship yeah. and business isn't isn't for everyone no no it isn't it's it's definitely a certain person that is sees the ability to take that risk i think mm. and not everyone does and that is absolutely fine for them but it wasn't for me mm. so where did the motivation to start uh you know hospitality business and open a cafe come from well i'd always like baking so Bakery was something I'd done for a long time. Um, I love my grandmother and I've, I've always baked at home. It was always something that I did. But it was like I was a hobby baker. But I've watched every cookery show going as well. So anytime I got a bit stressed, because in my jobs I'd do massive campaign launches where, you know, you'd have to do almost 18 hours of social media a day for several days and things like that. In between, like, getting thousands of tweets and stuff in, I'll be baking just to calm myself down, but it'll be where I go to. And there was, where I used to live, we used to walk my dog, then Bella, along the river into town and go and have a coffee every morning at um, Cafe Nero, so one of the chains, because it's the only place that allowed dogs in my entire town. And we used to sit outside and there'll be this derelict building, which is still derelict in there. And it was, it was an old, it was an old pub once upon a time, but it, if it was renovated, if the council ever pulled their finger out and actually allowed people to do something with it, it would be the most incredible building right on the river. And we used to think this would be just an amazing cafe or a bar. And you kind of sit there and actually really picture what this place would look like. And one day we were walking back from this walk. We'd had our coffee and we were walking back. So we used to do sort of a leap. And there was a different building just behind the Cafe Nero. That was being renovated and it had been derelict for as long as I've lived in that town. Circus posters in the window, broken glass, blackout glass, the typical sad looking old nightclub that it was that once was an amusement arcade as well. And it was starting to be renovated and the lady there who was in just just come outside who was renovating it, Liz, she came out and I was just nosing through the window. She's like, Do you want to come in and have a look? I'm like, sure. It's a building that's being renovated. I love looking at stuff like that. And I walked in and it, I mean, it was horrible inside. It had like this horrible carpet, it had an old air conditioning unit that was broken in the, in the ceiling. There was the amusement arcade booth, lime green, hideous bathrooms from back in the day when it was a nightclub. But she was saying, well, actually, this was originally built in 1929 and this was a, there was a picture on the wall that was opening day. And underneath the nightclub grime that was there was all the original 1920s features. So it had the original parquet, it had the original tall ceilings, the bronze work in the windows. And it was originally opened in 1929 as the Bedford Hunts and Cams Electricity Company showrooms. So it showcased what electricity could do in the modern home before electricity was there. Because behind that building was where power first came into the town. But yet all of this history had been lost under nightclub crime. I was like, this building is going to be an incredible place for a cafe, bar, live music, 
Yeah. And it suddenly that's that's where it started. I kind of had like a bit of a vision. And I meant this is where I mentioned it to my dad. And he was like, Well, let's well, why don't we give it a go? And it was about four months before the end of my contract was coming. Um and my job. I was like, Can we really do this? Because I've I'm not one never run a business, secondly, not professional baker, I've no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but like, well, then just put a plan together and see where it ends up. And that's where it kind of all started. So you basically just jumped into it in some ways. Was it was was it kind of quite spontaneous? It was an idea that had been there for a, a while, mm. and I think, but my dad and I, and also my husband, who was an who was my other business partner, we were all at that point where we feel like we needed to do something, and it was kind of the conversations that we had were like, these opportunities don't come around that often in that sense to do stuff. So what exactly are we waiting for? Mm. If we if we want to give it a go, let's just give it a go and see how it goes. You know, we'll learn as we go. We're going in we're going in knowing nothing, so we're only going to grow from here. <laughs> and as long as we kind of have that open-mindedness of like, let's just learn, then I'll be fine. And also have my plan, which I was a project manager, so project management spreadsheets was my thing. So I had a huge, huge document because this building was not a cafe. It was a it was an old nightclub that needed huge amounts of work to it let alone working out how to run a cafe and bar and bakery and get staff and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, it was it wasn't the traditional method of going into business. It was definitely the let's go for it kind of approach. Well, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of businesses do start that way and obviously, you know, Richard Branson's famous for his saying, Screw it, let's do it. But obviously, you know, I think you've got to take that with a pinch of salt because obviously, you know, he, he Virgin don't do anything without any, you know, due diligence or plans behind them. But um, so what was was there ever any doubts to or any fears around making that leap into and taking that that whole enterprise and liability on? Oh, so many, so so many. It, it was always like there was two sides of my brain: the brain that kind of was like. This is what we're going to do. And I'm going to say it out loud to people because I know if I don't, then the other side of my brain will take over and I won't do it. But as soon as I've committed, that's it, I'm in. <laughs> and I've, I've held myself accountable because I told people I, I can't be the person that commits to an idea and then chickens out. <laughs> I can see there's a pattern here because it's exactly the same mindset as the marathon, right? Yeah, exactly. You just, you kind of like, I, I'm, I committed, I've said I'd do it. I just, I have to show that I can do it. <laughs> it's not to anyone else it's got to be to myself mm. so yeah you, you're very good at accountability to yourself which is um was that the only thing that's that helped you overcome those fears and doubts then was that accountability i think having just having that plan in some ways having been a project manager and i came at it my background being like marketing digital social i knew that that was what was going to really help me make this business work so I'd spent a long time working out who my customers were, how they were going to, their behaviours, their buying patterns. I knew everything about my customers before they'd even come in the door because I was had that really clear picture of what they were in my head. And that came from the experience I'd had in my previous roles. And I'd done, even though I'd never opened a business, I'd done so many massive campaign launches. It was basically the same approach I took. Just the difference was it was my business that was 
the risk I was taking. And I just had to kind of reapply my knowledge and learnings and do it with that instead. So what success did you sort of see within that business once you opened? Well, I'd, I suppose in some sense it was, originally I just wanted to provide a place that people could go to. So part of my reason for doing it was I liked to have a place where I could go with my dog, that could enjoy coffee, relax, nice music, good company, like a home away from home. I wanted it to be a place where people feel, felt included that if you're on your own or whether you're with friends, it'll be somewhere warm you can go to. That's what I wanted to provide. So it was actually more than just serving coffee and cake and making stuff. It was about that experience, about that escape. And that, I suppose in some ways that came from my the art side of my yeah. head where I'm a musician and I've, I, you know, I have a, I've worked a lot, a lot in the arts and knowing how important arts is in the same way that knowing having a somewhere you can go for a nice coffee is as important to so many people of any age really so that's what I kind of was really driving driving me forward in kind of wanting to create this business and when you opened what was the response like from the local community and customers opening I mean opening day was a carnage I mean obviously any opening day (laughs) you got tech I mean my staff were not tech savvy in the, and I'd I'm obviously tech savvy person because I'd run digital teams but I wanted to make it as efficient and automated as possible so that took a while to get but it was a really good response I mean it any business that you go in on opening day compared to three years down the line is completely different because it's yeah. such a big learning curve you don't know who you're going to get in the door you don't know how much to bake you you don't know where the business is going to end up or head um and you've kind of doing your best guesstimate just to get through the day. I put so much effort and energy into getting the doors open. I'd forgotten then being given it was the 4th of December we opened on. They then had Christmas to get through. And it was our busiest time as well. So we'd, I'd got, even before I'd opened, I'd got private parties booked in for the evening. Like, you don't even know my business yet. Wow. People are booking up private parties. So the response was amazing. I mean, the community... When you go into the forums, you're always going to get people that are grumbling that another coffee shop is opening. Oh, we got that. And and I listened to them quite a lot to begin with, but I certainly got a thicker skin much later on. I'm like, well, there's plenty of coffee shops in the town and actually you're better together in the same way that the bar, I was one of two or three different cocktail bars. So we're a small town, but actually me being there along with the other businesses, we're better together because people don't want to drink in just one place. They want to drink in several. So, and same with coffee. We offered different coffees because people had different tastes. So we supported each other in that way. So it was, the town was definitely a good community to open and they're very supportive. And some of my loyalist customers came from day one and were still there at the last day as well. So, you know, it was, uh, with the team, the approach I wanted to take with the business was with that friendly, warm and opening and you know, being dog friendly as well. My team were all like that. They were friendly people. We we were people they could come in and chat to and we weren't going to kind of have that. It wasn't about being trendy or cool or hip. <laughs> well, definitely not that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we wanted to be just modern and classic. So that's what the we were aiming for. And what was your role uh, on day to day? It was everything, I think, would be fair to say. I did most roles because I struggled to really find my role to begin with. I really... Having come from being 
part of a team, even though I led, you know, I was manager of a team and I'd been, I'd done a huge amount of leadership and management training, which my previous company funded quite a lot of. I also didn't want to feel like I was above the rest of people. So I ended up being involved quite a lot, which I think it wasn't really until we'd gone into COVID and the lockdown, when I took a step back and really thought about my role in the business, I realized I was probably doing the wrong thing. So I really thought about where I needed to be or what was, what my use was best for the team. So some days I would be on service, some days I'll be in the kitchen, some days I would be on the bar. So I knew how to do everything. But when I started to think about it, I'm like, I'm not really being what I should be in this business. And that was actually leading it. And that's when I started to have to rethink exactly how my business was running. But you had other people doing all those roles. Because when, when you said that you were, you know, uh, you had the baking skills, I was anticipating you saying that you were the one in the kitchen doing the baking. Did you train other people to do to do that on your behalf? I didn't train people necessarily because I work collaboratively. So and my kitchen staff that were with me from the beginning to the very end, they were with me for the entire journey of my business. They taught me a lot about what they know and we used to share a lot of knowledge and we worked together. So I would do, I'd still be doing the baking. In fact, it didn't even occur to me when I first opened and it was a few years ago now, but I didn't really even think about me needing to redo any vegetarian, uh, vegan or gluten-free bakes. Mm. And I didn't have any knowledge. I never, I never made anything gluten or gluten-free or vegan before. So. I learned how to do that mm. and I became the the one that could do the gluten right. <laughs> gluten free and vegan bakes. But then I helped teach some of my other staff and they taught me something. So we, we learned together because sometimes one of the things I certainly learned a lot through leadership training is and I certainly in my teams when I worked in digital, like I work with developers. So web developers have huge amounts of skill and I can do some very basic coding but very basic. I don't need to know how to do all the coding to be able to run a digital team because there are people that get far paid far better than I do to do those jobs. But what I need to do is be able to lead. So even though I did some of the baking, it wasn't necessarily my only role and I could employ people that were equally as skilled. And we'd, when I was working out how I wanted to business to be positioned I talked about it with the team because they were going to be part of the business and they were going to be there every day so I didn't want to build this business just with my own ideas because I wanted them to have the creative ability to do what they want so when we were talking about what we were going to bake their input was equally as important because they'd worked in the industry before and I hadn't well I mean I worked in the bars back when I was like 18 <laughs> it's not quite the same thing so their knowledge and their skills were invaluable to me because they're like, well, I'm going to listen to you because even though I might want to take my business in a certain direction, you've probably got a lot more knowledge in this area. So let's talk about it and work out what's right for us moving forward as a team. So that's how we approached it. Yeah, and I think that's that's definitely you know the the right way to be in a team. And you know they say that essentially as a as a leader you want to potentially be the least qualified person, the least knowledgeable person in the room amongst your team. 
and you you know as you oh, say your yeah, role is yeah. is there to bring them all together and and give clear direction yeah absolutely you talked about earlier about realizing that you actually needed to lead the team rather than potentially be part of the team when was there a, a kind of moment that of realization that um that prompted that i think it had been building for a while but when i actually was able to make that change was when we went into lockdown in the first lockdown because it'd been 15 months so we hadn't had you know hadn't had a huge amount of time to build up the business and it was a seven day a week business plus evenings and events so it got live music got bar i got the cafe so the, it was like a you know it was quite a busy and intense time and i would be there most days if just trying to figure out what to do covering shifts sometimes because i'd the staff i thought i needed when i first opened doubled pretty much instantly because i, I planned for the worst case scenario but not the best case so i had to change all of that so there was a lot of the learning in that first 15 months and i knew that what i was doing wasn't necessarily sustainable or the best use of my time so when we got into the pandemic and some hospitality businesses decided to go take away and try and keep it going. Uh, ingredients were so hard to get hold of, let alone any takeaway packaging. And we weren't set up for takeaway. And I'm like, you know what? It's We don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic. I want my staff to be safe at home. I'm not in a position to offer any of that. So let's just take this time that we don't get very much in business to kind of go, we're going to pause for a minute and look at where we're going next get rid of all the crap stuff and we're going to take forward all the good stuff and let's really think about each of our jobs in this business and that's what we did so I started to look at a lot of data and analyze stuff and think about where my role was going to be and then I then talked to when we were allowed to eventually gather outside we'd sit in the sit in the park and we'd go through it and I'd share my ideas and they would have ideas of their own and I didn't have a general manager from the start. I was the general manager. I managed everybody. And that was one of the things I changed most was have someone that can manage the operations because I was trying to do all of that and it wasn't realistic. I couldn't focus on the strategy. I couldn't focus on growing the business because I was too busy doing all the doing. Mm. So I I changed my, I restructured the team. I streamlined it and I'm glad we did because those few months and years through COVID was challenging in so many ways by hospitality because the rules changed all the time we had to be so fluid and respond with not much notice to whatever was coming out actually the structure i had before was not going to work and my role that i had before was not going to work so that gave me the opportunity to kind of go i now need to think about how i lead this business through a really challenging time and hopefully we'll get through at the other end <laughs> that was that was where we were <laughs> oh it sounds like you're a very intuitive leader and um, by the, the stories that you you've kind of said um so far and i i think with some brave decisions that you you kind of made that decision to essentially pause the business and during covid how long did you do that for and then by sort of other question that i was you know curious to know is how how did you make ends meet in terms of finances were people put on furlough how did that work? Yeah, so I mean, the people being put on phone was definitely like the government funded that. So my staff all kept their jobs. So no one, 
because the week before COVID, I was actually telling them they're made redundant because I, like, my customers literally just dropped off mm. the face mm. of the planet as as they should do, mm. and I was like worried for my own staff's health and safety at that point. So being able to furlough my staff and get that government support and the grants, um, and fortunately, I worked really closely with a really good network of business owners in the local town. We were, it was a very supportive community and still is. And we were able to kind of get the information we needed at a real practical level that helped us get all the grants and all of those things that help businesses get through that time. So without that, that, you know, that March, 2020, we would have had to shut. There was no other choice. So we would have to figure out what went on from there. Um, so it was having to be agile and really rethink strategy and planning and it really did test sort of that strength of getting through that of how we're gonna how were we going to get through it there was no knowledge at that point but being able to take the step back and kind of go the best thing for the business is to put a strategy in place that allows us to be fluid and grow in the unpredictability because the cafe we knew would open before the bar we knew because the bar definitely got limited and the the bar was the thing I had because I knew it would make more money than the cafe so the bar was the money maker which when people aren't allowed to sit next to each other <laughs> made it very difficult so we had to had to rethink the strategy which is where I started thinking about baking bread and this is where bread came back in so during that lockdown I learned again how to bake bread I'd always baked bread but I had before COVID I work with local suppliers because my business is in the community, working with the community. So all my suppliers mostly were local and I trust them. I knew them. We talked to each other. We would be very open and I liked that respect we could have between each other. And I had worked with a bakery. There weren't many bakeries near me and I was working with a bakery, but they were just having endless problems with staff. And sometimes my deliveries wouldn't come until about 12 o'clock lunchtime. I'm like, I had a three hour service before then that needed bread. And they're having to run out to the local supermarket to go and grab some because they hadn't brought any and it wasn't working. I don't really want to have to go to the cash and carry to get bread. So I'm going to start making our own. And that's where the bread side came in and didn't have a big kitchen. It was like a home range oven I brought because like I say, we were home cooks. So I was like, what, do you, what kind of oven do you want to my team? And they were like, something that's not complicated. All right, how about this? They were like, yeah, it's great. So it's only small, but it worked for us because that's what worked for us. Wow. <laughs> and um, I started making bread just for the cafe. Thought, right, well, at least this is in our control. I can control the service because I know we're going to have bread. And I taught my staff how to do some of the bread because they'd never done bread making before. And it was when I realised that people was actually really enjoying what we're selling. I thought, oh, I've got I've got a side hustle going on here. I've got a business about to grow here and I thought if I'm not going to be able to have a bar maybe I can have a bakery because actually bakeries a lot of bakeries did very very well during COVID there was certainly around in our local area they were queuing out the door and but we didn't have a artisan baker there was no artisan bakery in our town I'm like okay right let's let's see what we can do there what can we where can the business grow and I had a back room which we'd use for basically for group bookings for like the baby showers because our, our cafe had 
really tall ceilings, which is great, except when you've got a lot of women in one space who are quite high pitched and then it makes it a nightmare for everybody else. So we used to put them in the back room. Of course, Greek bookings were banned. So if you're, I think I can't remember what rule we're on at that point, rule of six or something like that. I'm like, okay, I've got a room, which I'm paying for, which isn't doing anything for my business right now, but it could be a bakery. And that's where I started thinking about how can I open this bakery? Because I've got no cash flow. The cash flow is there to balance the books, but I've got nothing else to invest right at this moment. Certainly not enough. So I thought, I'll go to a bank and get a resilience loan because they were offering those at the time. And they went, nope, you can't have one. <laughs> Why not? Because you're not making money. I'm like, I'm breaking even. I'm a cafe that's breaking even during COVID. That is pretty good in yeah. my book. Nope. I'm like, well, what's the point of a resilience yeah. if you're only making profit? How on yeah. earth is that logical? Anyway, that, that's, a, that's a different issue altogether. But then someone said to me, well, why didn't you crowdfund? I'm like, well, I don't know crowdfund. It's like a genius idea. I've got an ultimate marketing campaign that I can get maximum publicity for and then get people invested that will help me open it. I've got customers before I've even built the thing. Like, it's great, great idea. Plus, if it fails... I've not lost anything because I know people don't want it. So I'm like, God, why do I think of this? It's stupid. And so that's where I decided that actually, if I can't have a bar that's going to function properly, a bakery would probably do quite as well. And that's where the bakery came. And you, how much did you raise? £17,000. What was your target? Fifteen. Good going. So we'd exceeded, yeah. And we we had a little bit of money that we put in ourselves and everything was secondhand. And bakery needs a relatively simple setup, really, and it was going to be sourdough. So there was sourdough and yeasted breads because I like working with yeast. I mean, I'm, I was not a fan of sourdough, but I knew my customers would want that. And I, had, I tried sourdough during lockdown like the rest of the world and failed miserably. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to just just get to grips with it. I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and work it. So did, you, did you turn that that room into a kitchen or was that a, the sort of... It became the bakery. Right. Okay. Yeah, so that room became the bakery because we had the service kitchen downstairs, but it wasn't it wasn't big enough to have like many, many layers. Yeah. And my the deck oven that I got was three quarters of a ton. It was huge. It had three decks and it was massive. Um... And I, well, when we brought it, I didn't tell the people that were delivering it. It had to go upstairs as well. <laughs> Keep that quiet. So, yeah, until like the day they were going to arrive. So it involved all sorts of lifts. And I think they, they got there about six in the evening and finished at 2 a.m. trying to get the thing in. It was a bit of a beast. But uh, yes, fortunately, I didn't have to remove that myself. But anyway, it went, it went in. And uh, yeah, I thought this space would actually be perfect for a bakery because actually... It's pretty much ready to go kitchen. It was already up to the um, environmental standards that it needed to be. It just needed the the um, extractor, which is the most expensive thing most kitchens can ever buy half the time. It's surprising how much extraction costs, which was the biggest, uh, that was three quarters of the budget on the extraction. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then the rest was just the, the like having a, a deck oven, mixer, a couple of tables and a preheating oven. Oh, and a fridge, because actually, despite contrary belief where you put all your dough in the air and cupboard, yeah. actually, a lot of our sourdough went in the fridge for two or three days. Yeah. <laughs> so so then you launched and how did, it, how did it go? How was it received? 
oh it was it was amazing actually the support we got from the local community and we got over 300 people that backed us I mean it was just phenomenal how many people really wanted to support the business and my idea and that's when I actually realized the business I created was more than just me now it was actually a community-based business and it had been for a time but I, I I was just like this small part of it now compared to what it become it was it was it was really overwhelming so but being able to actually open up that bakery with the community backing us and that support it was kind of like that forward drive and we were so busy when we came into 2022 it was just I had to get another till system in we had queues out the door constantly it was just manic it was like starting really? again and <laughs> yeah and of course wow. I at that point I because I've been focusing on the bakery side and opening that up and working with I've got a head baker in because I knew I couldn't do that myself and we were building it together and coming, you know, trial and testing and getting things ready. I got my front of house team were managing all of the front of house. I've given them the responsibility to organize it themselves because they are best place to do it. I would only get in the way and cause more chaos. So it was like starting again, <laughs> really well starting again from scratch, having to reorganize everything, sort out everything, try and work out who's going to keep the cafe, the bakery. Oh, it, it took a while, but it was, it was amazing to have that kind of response to what we'd done. So essentially you had a dual business, you had two businesses running then, really? Yeah, well, I mean, really I'd had three because the bar was also then a, mm. a literally a separate entity in some ways because uh, the bar was actually in the cafe itself. So at night time, because we served cocktails, we actually put a separate cocktail bar in and it was like on, it, the cafe was a completely different audience on the whole to the night time and it was a different setup. So if you came in in the day and the night, you wouldn't recognise the places because the atmosphere changed completely. It was very, very different. But we set it up in that way. I made, uh, my brother-in-law had actually built the bar and I'd made him make it so it was multifunctional so we could adapt it to different needs. So, yeah. Did you reopen the bar after COVID? We did, on and off, when we were allowed. Um, it was It was challenging. And people did come out but not in the same way they used to. The cafe, they were definitely more willing to come out. The bar, they were less so. And it was, I think at one period, it was closed for about six months in total because we just couldn't open it. We didn't serve food. And that was one of the rules in the UK is you have to serve food if you're going to sell alcohol. Like, I'm not going to start selling food just to open the bar because it's going to cost me money to do that and we're not in that position. Um, so we couldn't do it. So it stayed shut for a, a long while before we reopened. And we did, and of course, I'd run a lot of events. So I had lots of musicians because my background in music, part of the whole entity of the bar and the business was to bring new music into the town, bring culture into the town, support young artists, new artists, that sort of thing, which I'd done for 15 months before. And then was I able to do any of that? So it was it was a real... The, ca the cafe was even though the rules changed a lot, was the easier thing to manage. The bar was just something we couldn't do anything with, and it was it was so frustrating. And my team wanted to work. They loved doing their jobs. It was frustrating for them as it was for me. And I'm intrigued. You, you said that, uh, obviously, you made a, a clever decision to open the, the bakery in a slightly pivot um, when you couldn't open your bar. 
you you talked about the the bar being the the money maker. Did the bakery end up being as kind of profitable as a bar, or giving you the the sort of level of of revenue that you had before? To some extent, yes, but I needed more staff to do it, so it might have given me some of the revenue. But the whole the whole business was different by that point. Uh, COVID had the predictability I had before COVID had gone. I I couldn't tell you what day of the week was going to be busiest. Whereas before I had a really clear idea. Uh, some days, Tuesdays were busier than Saturdays and it just made no sense. There was there was no logic to work to people's behaviours. And I, I I watch people's behaviours and I study their kind of patterns and I look at the numbers and I look at the information. And it was just that uncertainty of knowing what to do next. So in the prime, the bar was making huge amounts of money. But of course, all of that had been just pulled out from under us. And there was... It's not a lot I can do. You know, we tried bringing back an evening food service, but it wasn't the right model for us. It wasn't it wasn't the right business business direction to go in. And it would have taken. We weren't a restaurant. That's not what we were known for. We were a cocktail bar with live music. That's what we did. But we didn't have the footfall at that point. So, yes, the bakery did, but that's because the whole bar model had changed. <laughs> mm. And I, I'm seeing here listening to you and it sounds like an amazing enterprise you've got you know a a successful bakery you've got a bar that does live music with cocktails you've got you know a cafe during the day I'm kind of struggling to put that together of how you went from that to closing it down so I mean we opened the bakery in 2022 was it 2022 yes it was 2022 we're in 2023 now get the years now but I'd then, the other thing I'd done, unbeknown to my team, is I decided to enter them into Britain's Best Loaf Awards. So about four weeks after opening, I entered them into this national competition against the best bakeries in the country. Because in my head, I'm like, we're going to learn something. We'll have a nice day out. It's food expo. We'll meet other bakeries. We'll get some feedback on what we're doing right and wrong. And I eventually fessed up to the team what I'd done because I knew if I told them too soon, they would freak out and they did freak out. Um, I'm like, look, just it's a learning thing. We're not we're not going in there to uh, do anything other than learn. We're going to take our loads, find out where we sit in how good we are at what we do, get some useful feedback from industry experts. It's time to learn. So I took the team and it. I'm ne- I've never been to an awards where they judge food like this <laughs> Literally, there were people in lab coats. It was quite frightening. No. Like, lots of people in lab coats, and they're literally pulling everything apart, really getting into the nitty-gritty of it. And um, we watched for a while. I mean, the judging took a long time. And in the end, I'm like, I can't, it's too much pressure, because you couldn't hear anything they were saying either as they went around all of these hundreds of loaves of bread. And um, we, I really wanted to know how our sourdough was doing, because we spent a lot of time working on that. And we'd taken our white loaves. So we'd done a two or three different loaves. And we ended up winning. I couldn't believe it. We've been open three wow. months. Yeah, that's amazing. Which uh, ones? Which category did you win? We won in the white farmhouse, so our traditional yeasty bread. But we came third in sourdough. I think there's third or fourth. I can't remember what it was. Something. I'm sure, like that, that was a strong competition. Sourdough. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. There were so many in that one. But the only reason we didn't quite get number one was because we put too much flour on it. That was it. We dusted it with too much flour. It was that yeah. close. I was like, I can't believe that we've gone from having crowdfunded this bakery to then 
winning this national award against the some of the bakeries that I followed and watched and got information like I learned from them they taught me so much to get to where we were it was just phenomenal incredible yeah and we came I mean we thought at that point we I remember having the conversation with my head baker because we honestly driving back from Birmingham that day we hadn't we couldn't believe what we'd done and we just completely were like it's going to really open doors for us we've kind of coming out of this really heavy period of challenges and almost a week later cost of living hit and the the world just kind of took another pivot which we just weren't expecting and it suddenly went from kind of having this plan having this award to not knowing when we're going to get flour next my flour deliveries went from three days to 14 days overnight and it wasn't like we were having a bag of flour a day I was running out to seafood markets at 10 30 at night trying to find flour and like 25 30 kilos worth of flour and, and everything just went up in cost everything was just increased and the it was there was only so much you can do to charge people more you can pass on the cost to a certain extent and i did a little but ultimately my, my customers also started changing their patterns because the media was all about the cost of energy and all of this and even my loyal customers that were still coming in were spending less. There was a notable difference. And it was almost, you could tell where that, that line had changed. You can see it in the figures, you can see it in everything. And there was also this, something that happened in the baking world. And it was the same for a lot of industries where people just, employees disappeared. I don't know where they all went. But bakeries suddenly were desperate for bakers. And I was in a small town outside of Cambridgeshire. So I wasn't like in a big city or anything. And the bakeries in Cambridgeshire were offering staff that had no to little experience the salaries of people that had been working three to four years, which was much more than I could ever afford to pay or was willing to pay as well because I'm like, that's skiing the market. As an employee, I, you know, I was, I was very open with my employees and talking about them and they would be telling me, saying, well, there's job opportunities come up in Cambridge and they're paying considerably more than you are. Like, there's nothing I can do about that. And if I were you, I would go for it because that is an opportunity not to miss. But bakeries were desperate for it and they could they were paying for people without the experience. So I'd spent a long time training up. Most of my bakery team were apprentices and never baked professionally before. I trained them up and then they went and got jobs that were paying six, seven, eight grand more than I could afford. I literally, and it just, everything just went against us. There was... I kind of would try and pivot and move, but my hands being tied, the bar really got hit because people were definitely not coming out buying cocktails. They would, people weren't part of the coffee. People wore coffee. Co mm. If it was a coffee, I think my business would have played sooner, <laughs> but they didn't necessarily want cocktails. And I couldn't, I couldn't justify paying the staff in the evenings to come in when we didn't have enough trade. So I had to call the bar. And even though I could try and get live music events on, everybody's costs and everything had gone up. So we were just fighting battles on every front. And I looked to kind of go, well, maybe we could go online. We could do scone deliveries online because that's maybe an option. It was totally the wrong location to do that in. We didn't have the right setup for that kind of a business. And the rents weren't cheap. It was quite expensive place to be in when you don't have that kind of footfall when the footfall had changed. So I could adjust and pivot as much as I possibly can. But actually, at the end of the day, the bottom line is not meeting, making ends meet. So 
I have to make a decision here. And I fought it quite a lot. But because my staff were leaving to go to bigger, shinier jobs in the city and people weren't then wanting to do the work. So I interviewed more people in that last year than I have done in the entire time I had my business. And some of the people would come in and go, I only want to work Monday to Wednesday daytimes. I'm like, it's a bakery role. It's, my team start at 2 a.m. <laughs> so if you want to be a baker, that's what you're going to have to do. And people aren't willing to do it. So that was that was really challenging. And I couldn't get the staff out in that small town. They weren't willing to travel. So it was it was a really hard decision to have to make. And it was it was the right one, but one I thought because I employed you know, I still was employing about 10 people at the time and I didn't want them to lose their jobs because I felt responsible for them. But I don't have an endless pot of gold in my bank account and the fact that we got through COVID and balanced the books and come out and still managed to open a bakery, I thought it was a, a bit of a miracle in itself that I couldn't fight that profit margin that was just getting squashed constantly and not having the staff to do it because all I ended up doing was covering all the shifts. So I'd be doing bar and bakery and cafe, which I can't, as much as I can try work 24 hours and I don't need very much sleep. After doing 80 hour weeks for a while, I completely burnt myself out. So. What did that burnout look like? I had to close. I closed for a month. So before we actually closed, I closed for a month. Seriously? Because, yeah, because I couldn't, I couldn't see the wood for the trees. I couldn't get a grip because I was just trying to literally I would be walking to work at five in the morning trying to get bakery shifts done then I'll be into the cafe then I'll be having to then do all the paperwork and then I'll be trying to find stuff it, it was just endless and then on the weekends I'll be trying to keep the bar going uh, I, it, I just couldn't do what I needed to do which was work out where to go next because all I was doing was firefighting and there was there was a new there was a new fire every day. I mean, it was like the business was ready to close. Like so it would be like, yep, yeah, what's today? Oh, yeah, the dishwasher broken today. Okay, great. <laughs> and of course, commercially, everything costs money. So every time something breaks, you have to pay for it. It's not like consumer um, or the oven's broken today. Like, okay, great, right? We'll try to figure out how to fix that. So there'll be a new thing that needed a solution to it every single day. So what? I couldn't get a grip of the business because all I was doing was trying to keep the day-to-day -day going and it wasn't working. The day-to-day -day wasn't working. So I obviously ended up burning out. I went, I need to stop. I need to stop for a month to get a grip of this and work out whether I can make this financially viable or whether I will have to close. And that was where I got to. And then what, what did you do over that month to come to the conclusion of closing? Well, I think firstly, I had a bit of sleep, which was <laughs> well overdue. I had a bit of a rest. And I mean, when you're working a bakery or a, a like a food industry business, you're on your feet all the time. So some of my days were over 30,000 steps. That was my average was over 30,000 steps just working. So I was physically and mentally exhausted. And I'd, um, during that time off, I'd actually gone to London for a, a bit of fitness craze person. I love doing fitness, but I'd gone to a fitness convention with one of the fitness groups that I work with called Les Mills. And it'd been in my diary for months and months and months. So I'd have gone to that. I was exhausted. I'm like, I'm going to this because I'm big fans of these people. They're in New Zealand. And I really, really... Because you've committed. I, I had committed. 
But I got to stay in a boat house, uh, like the good hotel, which is a floating barge on the um, docks outside Excel. So that was lovely. And um, in a way, it was like that other part of my, like a passion of mine. I like doing fitness and being around some really inspirational, motivational people helped me just kind of really think I need to take a step back and work out what I do from here. And what I went back with was I looked at going online. I took a bit of a break from everything. I saw some family. I saw some friends. I went for some long walks. Actually, what I went in was, I don't think I can get this business out of, the, out of where we are now because I can't see this economic problem of all the prices. And I'm not just talking small prices. I'm talking, you know, increasing. They went up massively. It was just really, really tricky. But I couldn't see necessarily that I was going to be able to keep the business going for much longer. But what I did kind of go back in was, I'm going to keep it going until I can't. So if I can weather that storm and some miracle happens and the government decides that it's going to give me a grant of some sort again, then maybe we'll get through it. If not, I'll keep the doors open until I no longer can. And that was where I'd, that's where I'd got to. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, maybe I could do like a, separate scone business online and take it to a different there was no point in paying for a high street location do something that wasn't high street because you pay a huge amount of rent on that so i kind of got this other idea of a different business brewing in the back of my mind of what i could do but at that time i was like i just want to keep people in jobs as long as possible and i quite i was quite open with my my staff and my customers about what i needed to do so i'm like i need to stop i need to rethink where we're going from here i've not got enough staff right now but I can't do everything and then work out what to do next. So I need that. I need that break. So you were kind of open with the team that essentially the business was struggling a little bit. Yeah, I was. I was. I'd when we were talking about what I was going to go to the press with because I've been in the press quite a few times because I was quite vocal about stuff and I've been on the radio and particularly with the crowdfunding and everything like that. Often I'd get asked to go and do radio interviews or TV interviews or that sort of thing. And I was quite happy to go and do all of those. So when I decided to close the business, I went out, I, I kind of said, this is why I'm, I'm completely exhausted. I'm working too much. What's the impact of what's happening now is not just happening to me. It's how, happening to a lot of people. It's just that you don't see that. And I'm going to be outspoken because I can be, whereas other people don't feel comfortable doing it. And I can see from inside the industry what was going on. But of course, we were in hospitality. So we serve everything with a smile and keep calm mm. and carry on. The reality is very different behind the scenes of what, people were having to deal with on a daily basis so I wanted to be that person that could give people support and being aware, raise awareness for some of the issues that were happening in and around their local communities and towns and I was always open with my staff and why I was doing stuff and I you know I would say I've got I've got to stop because I don't know what to do next I'm running out of options the bakery staff have basically left because they've got bigger and better shinier jobs than I could offer so everything I had a few months ago is gone in like hardly any time so I need to either come up with a new plan or look at what my options are and yes we might have to close but I'm, that will be the absolute absolute final result if I can't think of where to go next and what was that breaking point because you said you would keep it open until you couldn't so what was that moment that you when I it was over. I knew I wasn't going to get to the end of the month and pay everything. 
So I, I, I knew financially at that point that would be it. So we got through the Christmas period and then I looked at the forecasting and thought, oh, I'm not going to make it to the end of this next month. And that's when I decided in January it was going to have to call it. How did that feel? Tough. It was, I mean, it was tough. It was not a decision I wanted to make. It was something that wasn't just me that had worked really hard to do it. And I felt responsible because I was the one that had managed it and led it. And even though my husband and my dad were business partners, they were to some extent, well, kind of silent partners, but they weren't involved in the operations. I was the one that was giving it the direction and the leadership. But yeah, I couldn't get through this. I got through so much, but I couldn't get through this. And I was responsible for my staff and I felt responsible for a community that had been there for me when I needed them, but I couldn't be there to continue through a really difficult time. And it made me feel very sad because some of my customers, they were, they were regular. I mean, one of the, on our first year anniversary, we'd had a customer that had been coming in every day since day one. And that person would come in with their dog. And on our one year anniversary, they came up to me and said, I want to, I want to thank you and your team for being here because He'd lost his partner a month before he'd opened and they'd been together a very long time and he didn't know what to do with himself. But the business that I'd created was the comfort he needed to give him a routine that he suddenly had to find a new one for. And that's exactly why I started the business. So knowing that I wasn't necessarily going to be able to support people like that was really quite upsetting. And my staff were a... Uh, they were an incredible bunch of people and some of them had been with me from, uh, you know, my employees were like from 15 to 78. <laughs> they were real. Wow, 78. Yeah, that was my neighbour and her entire fam. I've had her entire dynasty work with me. So I had her and a daughter and a granddaughter at one point. So we had the whole of them in there. But it was, some of them had really grown as people, as what they'd done, their skills, they taught me a lot about business. You know, it, they challenged me in some ways, but it was like a big family. And that was like a, it was a real loss to have to go through that. And to, in the same way that we had been for the past few years, they just kept calm and carried on. They'd found another thing to do and move on to the next thing. They weren't flappable in that way in some ways. They would like, like the kind of attitude of had all the way through it was find the solution not the problem they were like well you know one of my one of my staff said well I'm going to move up to Yorkshire then right great so but it was really hard to do it was uh, having to close down a business any business particularly in that way where the choice was slightly taken away from me I mean I there's always a choice but I was left with very little options as to what I could do financially at that point so that was that was really tough to take I suppose from the staff's point of view, they could probably see it coming as well. Oh yeah, I mean there wasn't like I said, I was I was quite open with them. They they're not. We were, they were quite intuitive. I they'd always they'd ask me questions and I'd give them straight answers. I didn't want to be that person that gave them a line just to keep them there. If they felt that the business was going to go under and they wanted to leave, I'd let them have that opportunity to do that. But they didn't. They stayed. They, you know, I told them, I think, 
because I had to liquidate the business because I knew it was going to not make it. It wasn't not going to, I didn't kind of end in huge amounts of debt, but what I wasn't going to be able to do was pay some of the bills back. Mm. The insolvency company, because it costs money to insolve your business. So to go into liquidation, it actually costs quite a lot. And I knew I had to like, stay open long enough to make the money on that final day right. to make the money to pay for the liquidators and to make sure my staff got paid because they were my priority. I didn't want them to go out of pocket because they'd done so much for me. So I had to go out all guns blazing because I needed to get enough income in to pay everybody the money so that the business would end like at zero in that sense. So that's what I had to do. So I, I did a big media song and dance for the last day. I went out with the press release. I went. Oh, really? Yeah. Because, and, but the insolvency company were like, you can't, you can't stay open because you're saying you're insolvent. I'm like, but I can't pay you unless I do this. So <laughs> I, and also I owe it to my customers to give them that opportunity to come in again. So that's what I had to do. And that's an interesting way of approaching a closure of business. Cause I, I think some people just, you know, often just shut their doors and, and, and that's it. Was that some of that because you obviously so ingrained in that, in that community as well. You felt you had to, you owed that to that community. And obviously, I was also pondering about all your crowdfunders as well. Was there ever any, I suppose, guilt or thought about them and what they had given to you? Oh, yeah. Huge, huge amount. I mean, we I, actually, ironically, we closed the closed the entire business one year exactly one year after I'd opened the bakery so that whole year had just completely done a 180 on us and I felt I felt so guilty that the, everybody had given so much and yet I couldn't deliver long term for them I couldn't provide what they'd invested in and they most the majority of people were really understanding because, and I've been open with them, We'd, we have conversations, they would ask how it's going, and I'll tell them exactly how it's going, because they could see, there's no point in sugarcoating any of this stuff, because they are human after all, and I'm human, and I wanted to have that genuine interaction with them. So, they were very understanding, very supportive, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the people that were my customers still follow me now, I still talk to them on social media, so it's not like they weren't, they're still supportive of what I do at the moment, but it was, it was not a decision I took lightly. It was not a decision I wanted to do. And I certainly do go back and overlook everything that I've done. Like, I mean, I'm quite regularly, as probably many business owners that have had to cl ever close a business, trying to work out what I could have done differently to stop what had happened. And I don't actually know what else I could have done. So it's, it's really hard to even at the time, I was like, I shouldn't have let this happen. This was in my control and I let this happen. And I've let people down because of that. And that was... So there was nothing in hindsight that's come up that you look back and you think, I could have done that differently? Oh, oh yes, there was. there's plenty I would do differently, probably the way I led it from the beginning. But I couldn't change any of that. I don't think... I couldn't necessarily see the situation with the cost of living crisis happening in the way it happened. Certainly a lot of not being able to get hold of stock and how that changed. That was definitely not something I was expecting. And 
or having to deal with a global pandemic. <laughs> that was that was never in my plans or worst case scenario planning. I don't think it was in anybody's. So, you know, I often did wonder if 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 my say like my husband ran the business, if he'd taken he worked full time, but he was a business partner. If he'd done it, whether he'd done it completely differently and got from it. And I don't, I'll never know the answer to that. And I could, and I often sometimes do think about it quite a lot, but well, that doesn't necessarily get me moving forward. I could have, you know, I could have looked in those first 15 months, I could have been much more prepared for business and done things differently, maybe not started in the way I had, because I started from rookie status. Maybe I should have done something else smaller first, but I, I don't work like that. So it, in a way... I learned on the job, I learned from my team, and I made lots and lots and lots of mistakes along the way. But everything I learned, I used to help get the business better. So there's probably lots of things I could have done differently. I'm sure if you spoke to my team, they would have told you, like, there was lots of things I could have done differently. But I had to work with the information I had in front of me a lot of the time and try and figure out, make a, make a choice. So whether my decisions were right, I don't know. I don't know what choices that I could have done differently to get it beyond where it got to. Do you have any regrets? No. No, I still, I, I mean, I regret having to close it. That's one thing I can't ever change, but I still can't figure out why, I, how I could have done it differently to stop it from closing. So I never regret doing it. I, I love working for myself and what, you know, having that ability and, owning my own cafe and bar and bakery, I would have had a regret by not doing it. Even though it didn't necessarily go in the direction I wanted it to go in, I would have regret not having that opportunity and giving it a go. I, I, I honestly could not imagine myself sat behind a desk at somebody else's business anymore. <laughs> and you talked about, you know, you, you there was things in that first 15 months that you would have done differently if you got one kind of significant example i probably would have had well i've probably got a couple one is like i was pretty good at keeping on some of the numbers but numbers was not my thing i was much more in the let's get things done kind of phase so definitely maybe i wouldn't have necessarily employed as many staff as i did because we were so busy i employed more people but actually what i needed to do was rethink my operations and got that more streamlined so that might have helped with the like keeping some of the budgets a bit more in check so that is definitely one thing to think about is actually i'm if i'd really looked at it properly i would have probably changed my operations sooner so that it meant it cost me less in the business um the other thing i probably would have done was put more boundaries in for myself because i felt i needed to be there all the time doing everything being everybody in the team doing everything and that was that was the wrong approach i didn't need to do that I need to think like a CEO and stop worrying that other people didn't see me as part of the team. I'm the boss. They're not necessarily going to like me. <laughs> they don't have to. They just yeah. have to do a good job. And I want them to do a good job and enjoy their job. That was my premise. So I didn't need to be there to help them do that. <laughs> I needed to be the CEO of the business. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely what I would have done differently is kind of had that mindset shift of being a CEO and just maybe had a kind of, thought a bit harder about the operations and how that affected my business costs. And I suppose in a sort of similar kind of question, now looking back about the whole experience, what 
kind of key lessons have you had from that that you're maybe now incorporating into your new business? I think definitely a couple of things is the boundaries thing. So creating strong boundaries for yourself because I found, I mean, running your own business, it tends to get involved in every aspect of your life. But I never really fully kind of made those distinct changes. Like often I would, I'm a workaholic anyway and I'll, I can work for hours and hours. But that's not the best approach and actually making sure you have time for self-care and being realistic with your time. That's also really important. So definitely putting those strong boundaries in. I think. And what do those boundaries now look like? How do you actually do that in practice? In practice, I don't say I've necessarily got that right. I'm just in the middle of finishing off writing my book. So I've been working every hour possible. But it's basically not working more hours than you should do. Having time for your family, being clear with when you can work and when you are working. And I put, I definitely put those much, much more in place because obviously running a business that operated 24-7, I was contacted 24-7. I started getting really strict with when people could contact me and when I was going to respond. So I stopped responding on days we were shut, like Sundays, because we, had, we were closed on Sundays. And I'm, like, I'm not going to respond to my staff that seemed to have a habit of wanting to email or message me about something that had happened over the weekend on a Sunday morning. And then that would be what I'd be dealing with all the Sunday. So now... I, even though I've, I've, like I said, I've been finishing off my book and just on the launch. So I've, I've worked a little bit too much, but when I come back into the new year, I'm going to kind of get clear on like, I'm going to make sure I don't necessarily work on my weekends or if I do, I'm going to take that time off during the week and have a good time for myself rather than all I do is, oh, well, I mean, baking is fun, right? So I quite enjoy doing that as does my husband because he gets baked goods as he commented that the biscuit tin was empty today. Um, <laughs> the hardship. Yeah. I know, I know, thinks he does. But yeah, it's they're definitely having that clear boundary and when it gets out of whack again, it's checking back in with yourself and kind of going, actually, what we're doing here, get a grip, have some time off. If, you, if, you, if you're burnt out, like I have done, your business isn't going to run without you. So you need to put those boundaries in place. So having strong boundaries will give you like that really good premise from the start of your business to set it up for success. And what's the, I think you were going to say another lesson. I think I interrupted you. What was oh, the other? Yeah. Uh, the one, the one thing that, and this I hear a lot from other people that are in this industry is pricing. We have this, it's the money mindset side of it. We don't really ever think about it, particularly when you're going into a business because you love it. I'm doing it because I love it. So therefore I can't charge. And that was one thing I got. So, oh God, the amount of hours I spent worrying about my prices and well, am I charging too much money? That was my own issues. Nobody else's. And if people said that was too expensive, I've been like, well, you're not my customer then. If, you, if you're not willing to pay, then you're not my customer. And there's plenty of other businesses that will be, will accept your custom, but I'm not probably right for you. And that's fine. It's okay to accept that. But I was, I wanted to please everybody. So I sometimes undercharge for stuff. And it was the wrong thing to do. It wasn't sustainable for my business in places. And I didn't need to do it because people were happy to pay. <laughs> so, again, I think it's definitely thinking about money issues and being open about them. And I, I mean, I talk quite a bit about money, particularly in some of the stuff I do now, because there is no, nothing wrong with doing a business and making a profit from it. It's actually the right thing to do. It's just for some reason, we think because we love it, we can't charge. 
And it's, it's, and I've, I've grown up a musician. That was a choice I made as a child. I was asked, do you want to make money or do you want to be a musician? That was a question I was asked. I think I was about 12. And I chose music. Why are they, why are they different? <laughs> because only famous people make money. That was how it was for me. Only, only, only if you get in the best orchestras in the world, you'll make money. That's what I was told. <laughs> and that's what I grew up believing. So I became a suffering artist because I love music. <laughs> It's a wrong approach. Another you know, kind of limiting belief then around around money then. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I hear it so often. Actually, it's it's a common theme that runs through a lot of baking businesses. And people will say thing they believe that because they do. It. I don't want to earn much from it. I just want to make a living. Like you can earn as much as you like. You don't have to limit yourself. This is your business, your rules. And that I sh- and then I mean. I can't exactly go in charging £10 for a cup of coffee. I don't think anyone in my local community would have brought that. So I charged the right price for my costs. But it took me a hell of a long time to work out what they were. Not because uh, like I didn't have the numbers. I just didn't know how to do it. It was a myth. And I didn't feel like I could charge profit because I wanted to do it because it was something I was doing for the community. And I realised that was the wrong approach. So I changed that strategy. I got a bit smarter. I realised that I had to price my products with profit in it. Otherwise, if something breaks, I can't pay for it. So I had to rethink that. So that's definitely having that kind of awareness of what you're charging for you, not everybody else. And having that being clear of your money mindset of what you want to take out of the business. That's something I think people forget. I think it's a common theme across all entrepreneurs, to be honest. It's a confidence thing. It's a, it's all to do with self-worth and, as you say, um, limiting beliefs around and money and mindset is people not feeling confident enough that they can charge what actually should be the the value of that of that product and i think it is a common theme not just in hospitality but across lots of industries but just looking at this pricing thing because that's the only thing when you were talking about um the levers that you could have pulled during the fallout of the pandemic and obviously the inflationary stuff and the consequences of that that's the only thing that i i was going to sort of follow up with was was around the pricing do you think that because of what you just talked about around having that limiting belief at one point in your life around money that then that held you back from maybe increasing your prices to the extent which some hospitality business is potentially did. Because also I was thinking how, you know, because everything that you were saying was they're obviously huge, huge challenges and they're not easy to overcome. And, and I don't know the stats, but I'm sure a lot of hospitality businesses have closed because of exactly the reasons you stated. But obviously some haven't. And so then I'm thinking, well, why have why have some closed and some haven't? What are those ones that haven't closed done differently? Is it, you know, uh, is it their pricing? Is it, you know, the, I, I don't know, I'm speculating, but is there something that you could have done differently on pricing, do you think? I took off the items on the menu that weren't making me any money. I, so I changed my prices. But when you're like, when you're working with bread and dough, and you got in sourdough. There's my in mine. There was only three ingredients: bread, uh, bread, flour, water, salt. So obviously the cost of water didn't really change that much. The salt is minimal, 
and we used to get it from the same company and they didn't actually put their prices up to YouTube. The flour went up by 150%. So, and I was charging already £4 a loaf for my bread. So when I'm starting to get into the realms of five, six pounds to make it viable, because people think, oh, it's only flour, water and salt. It's a whole building. It's a whole star that go into that cost of that loaf of bread. It's not just a magic loaf of bread that's made out of the ingredients. There's so much more to it that everything else had gone up. The energy had gone up. I know bakeries that were paying 1500 a month that were paying over five figures a month. You can not get the amount of footfall in or charged you can't start suddenly charging ten pound a loaf because no one's going to buy it. So what? There's a there's a choice to be made there, and you think, well, I could, and I might get enough customers in, but I'm going to lose my loyal ones because they're not going to suddenly pay twice as much for loaf bread. So hey, it's a real tricky balance, and stuff that was costing my money came off. And I often do think about how did some of those businesses survive, and how them, you know. And I often look at the ones in my local town, think, how have you got through it? And I honestly, I absolutely do not know how they could have got through it. I knew for my costs were probably a little bit higher than them because my, you pay for window space and I had a lot of windows. So my building was naturally higher in rent because I had lots of windows um, compared to others, but still rents were high in my town. But when I look at some of the most successful chefs, entrepreneurs across the, across the world that have some have opened businesses and some have closed businesses during COVID equally, like Tom Kerridge, for example. He opened a business that thrived, had to close one that wasn't. So he's someone that clearly knows what he's doing because he's very successful at what he does. But sometimes it is just a matter of the wrong place at the wrong time. Every town was different. So when I actually announced I was going to be closing, I was actually doing a 24-hour speakathon for Mind with my local community. So all of us entrepreneurs in the local town would go on for an hour with one of the um, kind of business owner leaders and we'd talk about our businesses and various things. And I told him, I'm going to announce I'm closing in this time. And we were talking about like the reasons behind how it affected different businesses. And actually, every town responded to COVID in a different way. There wasn't all the cost of living crisis. Every town had different intricacies in the way it worked that had different problems. So even though some survived, and some didn't. I don't think it was like one size fits all that I could have changed to make my business work because it was different from other people's. It was in a different town, different location. My high street just suffered completely, really struggled, whereas other high streets suddenly thrived. So in a way, it was, I think, just a combination of factors. So if my business had possibly been in a different place at a different time, I think it probably would have survived because the model worked. It just was the wrong moment in the wrong place at that point. So it's a one I do often wonder if I how I could have done it differently. Could I change my prices? Could I have got rid of another member of you know made another member of staff redundant? To but to what end? <laughs> Other than me working more hours, which wasn't sustainable, or picking up my prices, which ultimately would have probably affected my customers or any more than I had. I put them up, but. You know, when you're looking at a business like a cafe, you're not making huge amounts of money on coffee. You're making some money on coffee, and it was our biggest seller in tea. But I'd have to sell double for it to become viable again. So it was the footfall was the problem that I had. And as much marketing and 
PR and all of that stuff I could do to get people in, special offers. Just wasn't enough for what they wanted and what they were willing to pay for in a time when they were struggling because of the financial situation. Obviously, this business was your baby and you can tell how kind of passionate you were about it. And obviously, it was a family venture as well. So you had a lot riding on it. Given that it's still fairly new, where do you think you are with it now in terms of how has it impacted you personally? And I was just thinking about it in terms of grief because essentially you could view it from the lens of the grief cycle and where and I was sort of thinking where are you in that grief cycle because you you've lost that you've lost that business and it is like someone has died in some ways isn't it mm -hmm. so oh, well, yeah. where are you I think I mean the first first few days after it was closed basically everything had to basically be removed from the business so that was pretty everything you built up, all of those things over the years, just to watch it all be basically take apart in a matter of days was quite soul-destroying, I think. And we and my husband and I was like, we're going to just go away for a few days. And we went to Dubai for four days and it rained the entire time. I'm like, oh, this sums oh. it up, really. <laughs> Pick a really hot country that's never rained and it rains the only four days of the year on the days we're there. So anyway, that was... I think that kind of summed up how I was feeling at the time. But actually, I kind of, where we kind of, I got to sort of with the grief cycle, I mean, I still think about it every day. I think I'd done as much as I could with it. And I had, and I talked about it, like, do I open something else up differently? Just maybe wait a little bit. Do I go to the scones online? What do I do next? So it wasn't like I kind of came out of the business and thought, I've got to get a job because that's, that's just not in me anymore. I just can't. It's working for someone else. It's my idea of, the worst idea you know working for other business owners and freelancing I'd happily do that working for another company is not my thing I just don't it's just not for me so I was thinking well what do I do where do I go from here and that's where I kind of ended up with the business I've got now because I thought okay well I've, I'll have a bit of a break I've got a business strategy maybe I could open up another place and do something a bit differently go online look at my options and I thought actually what I could do is help other baking business owners because I can be vocal about my experience. I can speak out about what I've done and I've had a huge learning curve. I mean, I started with nothing. Yeah. I, I walked into a building that wasn't ready. I had no experience whatsoever other than the experience I'd had from the job before. And I built up this business that had so many successes, even though it couldn't necessarily weather the storm financially and operationally. But there is so much I learned from that that could help other people get to where they want to. And I can share everything I've learned from baking because I didn't go in knowing everything. I didn't even know how to make sourdough. I never made sourdough before I opened the business, yet it became one of one of the best loaves in the country. And that was for a lot of hard work and trial and error and really having to have that approach of, I'm going to learn from this. And I know how lonely it is. The one thing that I really struggled with when I first opened was one, the self-confidence. And I think a lot of it does come down to the confidence and the mindset. But I didn't have, suddenly I didn't have a boss. I was the boss. And no one to ask or get validation from because that was me. <laughs> and when you're doing it alone, that's hard. That's really tough. You have to trust all your doubts are right and hope for the best. And you've got to keep the faith. So I know what that pressure feels like because I've done it and I had it 
in an extreme way to what most people start with. I had, I think, by the end of certainly by the end of the second month, I had seventeen staff. So it hadn't gone for. I, I thought I was going to have four. I had seventeen. So it was completely different to what I thought I was going to have. And I wanted to be able to give people that kind of share that love of baking, share that knowledge that I learned as well as help them with their businesses because I love baking and I love business and I want to be able to help them. So that's what I decided to do was to start the business pretty much um, the day it officially went into insolvency as such. And that was Create Baking Boss, which is what I do now. So it's what I do is now help businesses, baking businesses, baking business owners start and grow their businesses. So, you know, I help them when they're kind of really struggling to know what to do next and going through like environmental health. I mean, that is terrifying. If you've ever had environmental health come around, it's the most terrifying experience. Actually, then most of the time it isn't, but it's being able to give people the confidence and some of the knowledge that I didn't have, but probably wasted so much money trying to figure it out and trying and get stuff wrong that I didn't need to. But I looked for someone like me. I tried to find a coach that dealt with small businesses in the baking world, like a cafe. And they either dealt with big food brands or big restaurants. And I was small fry to them. They weren't interested. And even the ones where I did employ later on to help as consultant, it was a waste of money. They just did not get to, they did not understand. Um, And it was wrong. What they were suggesting was completely wrong. They, you know, they'd give me a whole different product menu. And I'm like... I, I see what you're saying here, but this isn't going to work in my town. <laughs> People don't even know what half of these things mean. So, again, I wanted to be able to provide people that support and knowledge and guidance and know someone's got their back, know someone's got the ability to go to someone and go, how on earth do you scale up bread making? Because <laughs> I have no idea. I'm like, oh, I had no idea about that. Google didn't tell me any answers to that one. I had to make it up. <laughs> but... You don't feel like you can go to other business owners and ask them all their trade secrets. It just doesn't feel right. So that's why I decided to do what I do now. So I talk about my business almost, the, the cafe, bar and bakery, almost every day, which is kind of in a way a bit of, I suppose, a therapy if you like. But I do it to help people because I can help people. And that's what I started the business is because I like helping people. I wanted to give them something else. And that's what I want to do is help this community where people just want to bake for many reasons. But a lot of the people that start like learning to bake and are in my baking groups actually maybe one day will start a business. And why should they deny the world of their cakes and bakes and breads? Because they should share, they should share them. I love cake. <laughs> Who doesn't? And given the fact that you're in business with your husband and your dad, and you, you kind of mentioned they were sort of silent business partners in some ways, was there ever any kind of tension or fallout? In uh, at any point because of the the strains of the business, the fact that you know it was coming under severe kind of challenge. Oh yeah, I mean ultimately there was. I think my dad has always been quite a we're very similar mindsets, and I grew up with him, so he's very much uh, keep calm and carry on. He's very like this, so he's you know not not a lot phases him, and he's he's very kind of stable, and he's a very good sounding board and things like that. But there, of course, particularly as with my husband, we have two different ways of working. I work in a certain way, he works in a different way. I manage teams in a different way to the way he manages teams. And there were conversations where I had to, I felt like I had to be the managing director, the CEO of the business to ask him to step back because 
I didn't want to confuse the director on my team. And it was quite a challenging thing to have to do is kind of go, right, I'm going to talk to you about business head on and then I'll come back to being your wife later. <laughs> but at the moment, you're interfering with how I'm doing stuff and I can't have you doing that because it's not helping me. It's undermining my authority sometimes and it makes my staff confused as to know who to talk to. So there were conversations at points where we had those kind of conversations and also I'd get home from work and some days it would be very, quite busy days and you talk to a lot of people. The last thing I want to do is get into the nitty-gritty of the business at that point. So I had to put some boundaries in place that worked for me because I needed just I needed to get those that space from it and have a bit of time to debrief and think. He's very much a, I'm going to take action now and think in the heat at the moment. I'm a thinker, so I need time to digest stuff. So the way we came at it was two different approaches. So sometimes that would definitely cause tension. And we, I think eventually after a bit of kind of rating each other up the wrong way for a while, we managed to figure out the best way to work with that. And that was definitely by letting me do my job, <laughs> letting me manage it in the way I needed to manage it because I found it very difficult to manage it with him over my shoulder in some ways. And he had some, he did have really great advice and really great suggestions and great ideas. And I'd have to then decide whether I took them forward or not. So sometimes that would be quite challenging. But in a way, he could do a lot of things that I couldn't do. And that was invaluable to the business, as was my dad's knowledge. And I think there's always going to be tensions with any team. Any close-knit team will have tensions. But I think in the end, we did figure out the best way of working together. But it took us a while. But what I have learned is that we can't do similar roles or one of us manages the other because that does not work. <laughs> We're too strong-minded and two different approaches. So whatever we, if we ever went into business again, I don't know whether we would do, but if we did, we would have very different roles in the business, I think, because it's the only way we would ever work together. <laughs> and, and you talked about, you used the word lonely earlier, which was, is an interesting word considering you were working with your dad and your husband why did you feel lonely it was i suppose in some senses because i was the one that was ultimately i had the most majority control i was the one in charge and we were all none the wiser in what we were doing we were all coming in at equal footing i mean we've all got different business experiences from our own careers to bring in and we were all of us are quite practically minded and logically minded but I was taking on the bulk, the bulk of that responsibility. So I would have, I would overrule them on occasions and I would have to stick my neck out without knowing whether it was the right decision or not. And actually, I think it was the loneliness of not knowing whether I'm doing things right. That was where it was really hard because I, I had a lot of self-doubt and I didn't necessarily know what I was doing, but I didn't know who I could ask because I could, I could ask my staff and I could ask my dad and my husband but none of them really knew the answers to what I was trying to find out. And a lot of it, of course, when you're starting out a business, you are venturing into the unknown. So there aren't the answers there right in front of you. So that was really incredibly lonely because no one really could understood other than someone was, who was in my position what it's like to lead that kind of a business and try and manage it. And particularly through some of the challenging times that we went through, that was a lot for anybody let alone business owners that were having to m make sure that people didn't lose their jobs and staff and 
you kept your business open because you're supporting communities and stuff like that. So that was that was where it felt really tough sometimes. And I think when I, I found, like I mentioned, the business community I found earlier, they were a great support in so many ways. And they weren't like a one of those networking groups that you've gone to, and I've been to a few of these, and I've just been like them where they go and everybody's like, I'm really good and really clever at what I do. And I'm like, I am. <laughs> I want people that what gives me the reality. I want to talk to humans here. They kind of go, hey, look, you know what? It's all right to fall apart as a business owner because that is just what happens. <laughs> and sometimes you would need that, but you didn't know who you could, like you did, like I said, you didn't have a boss to run to. You didn't necessarily have that kind of person that you could run to and go, something is not going right. I don't know why. What do I do? And they would steer you off in the right direction because I had to decide what that was. So that would be where it get quite lonely. And I think a lot of, certainly, certainly in many industries, but when I talk to like a lot of the people that are doing it as a side hustle or just starting out with their baking businesses, they're doing it from home. They are completely on their own. And some of them that have like, sometimes they do it because they've had a family and they want something that fits in with working, you know, working with their family. They haven't got, most of their friends are working nine to five. So they haven't even got their friendship support around them. So even though I have people around them, it, it had people around me all the time. They weren't necessarily the ones that could understand what was going on in my head. <laughs> Which is why, and I, you know, I was obviously speaking as, as a business owner as well, that I completely agree and resonate with what you're saying about having peer support from other business owners because it's so reassuring to hear other people say, yeah, it's really hard, or yeah, I. You know, it's really difficult sometimes to get out of bed because you don't want to have to face all the challenges you're going to have to face that day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What? I think this is a good question for you, given that, you know, from what I we've heard today, you kind of just jump into things. So what advice would you give to entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs about the, about how to handle the fear of failure? It's a really great question, but I think you shouldn't see failure as a bad thing. And I, I'd beat myself at saying I failed at stuff and I failed at this business. Actually, without this business, I wouldn't be where I am now. So sometimes it is just about going, failure is about learning. It's about taking the knowledge of what didn't work and making it better next time. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting stuff wrong. I've got so many things wrong, so many things wrong in business that I would have probably done differently if I'd had the insight, but I didn't. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to use that and make it better next time because that's all I've got. And that's all I can do. I can't know what I don't know. So uh, I used to work in a, but years and years ago, I worked at a glue factory. And I, I did actually do anything with glue. I know, random job, but I was actually an admin. And one of the people there was telling me about a company because this company used to build like formula one cars and all sorts of things so it was quite an interesting place to be and they say one of the car manufacturers over in japan they had a button so every time they did something wrong when they're making a car they press this button and everyone would pile over and look at what's gone wrong because they can all learn from it they can all learn and then do then know either not to do that again or make an adjustment in the whole operation and it's like well that that's a great way of looking at failure it's a learning it's something we can do next we got failures, we can learn from it. If you get everything right all the time, you're not going to necessarily grow. So it's just part of the way the world goes sometimes. Sometimes you have to try something to know that you can then move on to do something else. 
All right. And again, I think this question is really pertinent for you because having run a business through COVID, a hospitality business through COVID and come out the other side and then having to deal with all the stuff you dealt with in terms of the inflationary environment and things like that and the supply chain uh, issues. So you, you, you know, you survive so much. So those people out there that have, might have been experiencing severe challenges or setbacks within their business, what advice would you give to them? My advice would be is just to trust your instincts of what you've got to do next. So the worst thing any business owner wants to do is want to close. This is usually the last resort we get to, particularly when it feels like it's taken out of our hands. But it's not a failure to do that. It's just being honest as a business owner about where your business is and what it's doing next. And there are, it's been really tough and it's still really tough for a lot of businesses trying to weather through that storm. But all you can do is keep looking forward and keep moving forward, taking another step, reevaluating, being agile, looking at the next option. You've got, just look at the information you've got to work to that. That's all we can do is just keep moving forward. And sometimes it's just, you just sometimes have to rethink the business. We have to change direction. Sometimes it's just about being honest with yourself and going, it's, this is it. I can't do this one anymore. Whether it's for financial reasons, whether it's for your own health and well-being, because you come first and everything. If you come, if it's too much for you now, and there's nothing wrong if it's too much. I burnt out. I had to stop. I was forced to stop because my body went, no, you're done. Give up. Um, but don't get let yourself get to that point. It's And you know what? If, if you are getting to a point where you're really struggling, reach out to me. I've been there, so I know what it's like. So come and come and check me out and drop me a message and I'll, I'll, I'll be there because I don't want anyone to feel like they're relating any of this. That's an amazing uh, offer. So last question then. If you could go back in time and stop that failure from happening or that business closure, would you do that? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was a great business. But it, it, you know, it had so much going for it. Something happens because that's what's ha supposed to happen. If if I hadn't stopped closed that business and I wasn't here now, I wouldn't be able to help other people get better at what they're doing. And there are so many people that don't necessarily think they got the opportunity to start businesses that should <laughs> and have absolutely the capability to do it. They just don't believe in themselves or have the knowledge and they're afraid to do it. So I can actually give so much more doing what I'm doing now. So even though that business could keep going, I would still want to be helping other people do something they love as well. And hey, like I say, we all need more cake in the world. I mean, if people can't make more cake, they'll be doing a disservice to the world. <laughs> Brilliant. So we're going to end on a quick fire round. So this is short questions and short answers. Perfect. So first question is, failure is? Learning. What is your life's mission? To help people. What's one piece of advice that you'd want to give on your deathbed to others? Do what you want to do because you love what you do. What's one habit that keeps you resilient? Fitness. <laughs> Running marathons, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Don't do that anymore. <laughs> if you could be immortal, would you take it? No. Why not? Oh, I th I think you should live life to the maximum without an end, like knowing this is my time and I'm going to live it to the best life. Also, I don't know if I want to get that many wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> What's one surprising fact that not many people know about you? Uh, not many people know about me. I'm, I ride motorbikes. <clears throat> Great. And last question. What's uh, one guest uh, you think I should have on? Ooh. One guest. That's a That's a really great question. I think I'm, I'm going to go for one in the baking community because I think this will be a good one. And that's actually one yeah. of my favorite people is Nadia Hussain. I think she's incredible. She was a bake-off winner back in, I can't remember which year now, but actually I think she's a true inspiration. Has she had any good stories of failure? Oh, well, she's she won bake-off, so I don't know. But I mean, yes, she's <laughs> her, her life is a very Probably interesting life. And uh, she is definitely one to interview her in some of the challenges that she's overcome brilliant so Naomi where can people find you and connect with you so I'm on the socials at I am Baking Boss and you can go to my website bakingboss.net I've got the podcast which is Baking Boss Kitchen Secrets where I share everything that in my experience of running a business and advice for people which is also available from my website and uh, yeah, drop me an email, Naomi at bakingboss.net, because I like chatting. And if you're on my weekly email list, you'll get some random email about the latest thing happening in my life with a funny story that I usually tie nicely back into a little anecdotal business. <laughs> so yeah, come enjoy that. Fantastic. Uh, sounds like there's certainly loads of places for people to connect with you. So really enjoyed today's conversation. So thanks so much for being here and being so open and honest with everything that you've faced in the last few years. Um, so, yeah, really appreciate you being here. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at Beyond the Fail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.